Good morning, friends. It's great to have this opportunity to open up God's word with you and to have him speak to us through his word and in speaking to us, conform us more and more into the image of his son. I want to invite you to go ahead and pray again with me briefly, and then we will look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for the preaching of your word. We pray for the hearing of your word. Uh, Those words that are difficult to hear and easy to hear, difficult to understand, easy to understand, difficult to obey, easy to obey. Let all of your words find a home in our heart now and produce the fruit of righteousness and peace, gentleness of soul, quietness of soul, and ultimately hope in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right, friends, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter We're going to be looking today specifically at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, as we continue our study in 1 Peter. As always, I want to encourage you to open in your Bible to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it here in a few moments. And I want to encourage you also to keep the Bible open in front of you because we're going to be looking at it often in our time together. Uh, We're in 1 Peter chapter 3 now. But what I want to do briefly is help you to see how what we've covered so far fits together in 1 Peter and how our passage today is connected to everything that has come before it. So if we were to go all the way back to chapter 1, we're not going to do that here. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles. But if we were to go back to the the beginning of chapter 1, in the first half of chapter 1, Peter spends time describing the glorious salvation that God has accomplished for his people. He chose us in eternity past. He set us apart by his spirit. He cleansed us by the blood of Jesus Christ. More than that, he he caused us to be born again. He gave us an eternal inheritance and has promised to protect us so that we all will receive that inheritance. Then Peter transitions briefly in the second half of verse one to talk a little bit about what that means for you and me, how we should respond to that message of salvation that God has accomplished for us. And what we hear in the second half of verse one is that we should set our hope fully on Jesus, that'll come up again today, that we should live holy lives, that we should live in reverent fear of God, and that we should seek to live one another constantly. But then in chapter two, Peter returns to this idea of our identity in Jesus and what our new identity in Jesus is. And there we see that Jesus is the foundation of our faith and he is the temple that we are all now being built into through faith in Jesus Christ, and then he turns again, after describing us as God's chosen, royal, and holy people, he turns again to describe what that identity means for how you and I should live as strangers in the world. I do want you to look with me briefly at chapter two, verses 11 and 12. This is basically his conclusion and where his letter transitions to this new section of instruction. He says in verses 11 and 12, beloved, Because of everything I've said about what God has done and about who you are as God's chosen, holy, and beloved people, royal people, this is how you should live. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitations. Peter wants these Christians to know, and Peter wants us to know that the way that we live our lives 
has the power to bring unbelievers to faith in Jesus. So important is this to Peter that he tells them what that means for the way that they're to live out their faith in a society where people don't necessarily share their faith. And what does it mean? What Peter wants us to know is that our characteristic response to the various human institutions that we participate in is to be one of being subject to those in authority. So look, look briefly at chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And here he's talking about being subject to honoring and obeying governing authorities. Now look at chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. I preached on this a couple weeks ago. If, you have, if you're interested in hearing more about that, I invite you to listen to that sermon. Many of the new Christians Peter was addressing were slaves who had no recourse to becoming free or raising complaints about their treatments. And his instruction is to them is, be subject, honor and obey those in authority over you. And this instruction, as we'll see today, extends to the relationship of wives to their husbands. And that's what we're gonna consider in our passage today. I want you to go ahead and look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses one to six. You can follow along as I read it for us. This is God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, in case you are worried about husbands being left out, I just want to let you know, next week we're going to spend an entire sermon, a, a sermon addressing husbands. But this week, we want to consider how Christian wives are to live in such a way that has the power to win unbelievers to faith and displays the beauty of their hope in God. If you're taking notes, that is the main point of our text this morning. Christian wives are to be subject to their husbands because it has the power to save their husbands and displays the imperishable beauty of their hope in God. We're gonna cover this text in two points. Point one is going to be power, power to say. Point two is gonna be beauty, the imperishable beauty of their hope in God. So first, power. Christian wives are to be subject to their husbands because doing so has the power to save. Look at me at verse one again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Before I keep going in the verse, I just want to call this out up front. I realize how loaded words like be subject or submit are especially when directed at 
wives in the context of marriage. Uh, Some of you may have even had these words used against you like weapons in a way that is completely inconsistent with what the original authors intended when they gave these instructions. Right, in much the same way as Christians in our country's past have used the Bible to support and endorse slavery, some Christian husbands have used these instructions in tyrannical fashion to force their wives to acquiesce to all of their demands. In fact, uh, passages like this have been so abused that we could spend an entire sermon talking about what this passage doesn't mean. But if we do that, we won't get to hear what Peter is saying it actually does mean. We won't get to hear what Peter's actually saying and how wives can actually obey what God is calling them to, and we want to hear that. We need to hear that as well. So I'm gonna offer some qualifications as we go through this, especially when we get to areas of application, but I just wanna call that out up front. Just say, I recognize that. But we also wanna see what it means for Christian wives to be subject. We see in the text that Christian wives are to be subject to their own husbands. And I wonder if you caught that as I was reading through the verse. Women are not being called to be subject to all men, nor are wives being called to be subject to all husbands. The command is for each individual wife to be subject to her individual husband. This instruction is to help married women to know how they're to relate to their own husband. And their relationship to their husband is, among other things that scripture commends, to be marked by being subject to their husbands or submitting to their husbands. As I've said in weeks past, this entails both honor and obedience. It's an attitude of the heart, honor and respect and an action, seeking to obey, or in the case of wives, I think I would say it more as entrusting themselves to their husband's leadership. I just wanna say real quick, it's very easy to read, Be subject to the governing authorities. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And to think, oh, it's gonna look the exact same in each of these, right? Your husband is not the emperor or the president. And you're not subject to him the same way a citizen is subject to the governing authorities. Your husband is not a master and you are not his slave. You are not subject in the same way that a slave is to their master in this context. Being subject for a wife is going to look different specifically because it is a fundamentally different relationship. We're gonna talk more about that. I'm gonna call that out right there though. But what I want you to notice, more importantly, is the reason why Peter tells them to be subject. He says, if you look at verse one again with me, it's so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter knows that some of the women in his audience have husbands who don't obey the word. That is, they are unbelievers. And Peter is telling them that their willingness to continue honoring and entrusting themselves to their husband's leadership has the power to bring their unbelieving husband to faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter wants these women to know, you have the glorious power and privilege. I know, that, I know that this is hard, sister. I know that this is gonna be difficult for you, but you have the glorious power and privilege to show off to your husband the life-changing power of the gospel by honoring him, by respecting him, 
and by entrusting yourself to his leadership in your life. He's saying, listen, if some of you do that, some of you will even win your unbelieving husband to the faith without a word. So powerful is the testimony of your life. Now, when when Peter says you might win your husband without a word, he's not saying you don't ever share the gospel with your husband, your unbelieving husband, or talk to him about Jesus or about the Christian life. He's saying, hey, you don't have to feel like you need to nag him or take every opportunity that presents itself to share the gospel with him or take every opportunity that there is to talk about Jesus. He's saying, hey, once you've done that, let your life do the talking. Your life can speak loudly about what you've just shared with him, right? Let your life do the talking, as in chapter two, verse 12. Live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Those of you married to men who don't follow Jesus have the power to be used of God to save your husbands through your holy and pure conduct towards them. I I also want to say that if if your husband still hasn't believed, it's not your fault, right? Like if you just did a better job at being more submissive, being being subject even better, that then he would believe. And the fact that he hasn't believed is because you haven't obeyed these instructions, that's not necessarily the case. What you're called to do is, is to be subject, to obey God, to put your hope in God, and then entrust God to work in your husband's life as God wills, right? But this isn't just limited to women whose husbands are Christians, right, or or, or aren't Christians. If you look at verse one again, he says, it's so that even if some do not obey the word, his unspoken assumption is that there are also going to be many wives whose husbands do obey the word, who are believers, And those wives are to conduct themselves in the same way. And although your husband is already or may already be a Christian, your witness, your testimony in his life is no less powerful. Your willingness to be subject to him, your honoring of him and entrusting yourself to his leadership has the power to be used of God to sanctify him and to make him more like Jesus. As as your husband watches you choosing to show honor to him when he doesn't necessarily deserve it, or entrust yourself to his leadership when there may be many reasons to doubt it, your husband is getting a front row seat to watch you faithfully follow in Jesus's footsteps. And the husbands who are paying attention will notice and praise God and be spurred on themselves to follow more and more in Jesus's footsteps. I, I mean, I could just directly apply this in my marriage to Leah. I can't tell you how many times I have not been worthy of her honoring me and showing respect to me because of how foolishly I've treated her in any particular situation. And I can't tell you how many times she has responded to my foolishness and my sin with grace and with kindness and with quickness to forgive. And I'm like, man, I need to be a better husband. I, need, I wanna be a better Christian. But the next time I'm offended, whether it's by her or by someone, I wanna be as quick to forgive as she has with me. You have the power to help sanctify your husbands. And I wanna say, husbands, watch your wives. This congregation is filled with godly wives who can teach you and me about what it looks like to follow in Jesus's 
footsteps. But we do have to, we do have to get down to specifics a little bit when we talk about being subject. I wanna think, what, is, what does it look like to be subject in practice? I mean, we have to recognize that Peter doesn't go into specifics, right? Neither does Paul in his letters. I mean, in Colossians, it's like one sentence. This is what you do, wives. And then he, he, he unpacks it a little bit more in Ephesians. But they don't describe how this is gonna play out in each and every marriage and each and every scenario within marriage. It may look different from one wife to the next and from one couple to the next. But with that said, I think there are some general patterns and practices that we can identify. Uh, an analogy that I've used before that I think is helpful, not perfect because no analogy is, but helpful in describing what it looks like in practice is the way that the, the captain and crew of a ship work together, right? The captain sets the destination, kind of charts the course, provides overall leadership, and then works together with the crew to reach that destination. And then inside of that, working together, the crew makes a whole host of decisions and uses their expertise and their various fields, of which there are many on a boat, to ensure the ship reaches the destination. The captain is kind of overseeing the big plans, concerns, and moving parts, making sure all of that has been addressed and that everyone is on the same page and then releases the crew to do their work. Now, notice what this analogy teaches us about what submission isn't. Submission, being subject, isn't silent acquiescence to the desires of the husband. Just like a captain would be insane not to solicit and heed the opinions and input of his crew, so a husband would be insane not to solicit and heed the input of his wife. Wives, submission doesn't mean you shouldn't share your opinion. You should voice your opinions to your husbands, and your hus husbands, you should carefully consider your wife's input. Neither does submission mean the husband makes all the decisions, right? Husbands should look for ways to free their wives up to make decisions for the good of the family, especially in areas where they might be particularly gifted, right? The best possible example, I can think of this from scripture, is the wife from Proverbs 31, right? Who makes, if you look at Proverbs 31, she makes real estate deals. She plants a vineyard. She sells her merchandise, and she does all of that because the heart of her husband trusts her. Husbands, entrust authority to your wives so that they are freed up to make decisions for the good of your home, especially in spheres of responsibility that impact them the most. In addition, when it comes to decision-making, the call for wives to be subject does not give the husband authority to make unilateral decisions without his wife's input. Brothers, if you're married, when you're making decisions about important matters like how you're gonna spend money. I'm not talking about like, I'm gonna go to McDonald's today. Like, you, I, I hope you don't have to talk about that. Maybe you do, but like bigger, we're thinking about bigger uses of money, how you spend your money, how you raise your children, how you're gonna spend your free time as a family and, and other important things like that. You need to be including your wife in the decision-making process. And neither is submission agreeing on everything, right? The wives that Peter is writing to disagree with their husbands on the most important question in life, namely, who is the true God? 
Wives, here, submission does not mean that you need to agree with your husband on everything. It is inevitable that there are going to be disagreements in marriage. My encouragement to you, husbands and wives together, is if you get into disagreements where you're at an impasse with your husband, it's essential that you bring other people you're close to into your life to help you think through the disagreement together. That's part of what it means to live as a church community. And as you bring other people in to help you think through disagreements, the wife may find that she needs to follow her husband and go with what he thinks. It also may be that the husband may find that he needs to put aside his desires in order to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And bringing bringing in trusted counselors can shed light on which of those options is the best course. Yet I will also say, with one further caveat to husbands, that on matters of consequence, it should probably be pretty rare to make a decision that your wife disagrees with. I want us to move to another state. She disagrees, a very consequential decision, right? I want us to move to a different community. I, I want to send our kids to a different school. If there, if there is a fundamental disagreement, I think it should be exceedingly rare that you make decisions that your wife fundamentally disagrees with. Just throwing that in there. Neither does submission mean following your husband into sin or putting yourself into harm's way. If your husband ever encourages you to sin, cheating on your taxes, defrauding your neighbor, lying to an employer, you should not be subject in that situation. In that case, Submitting to him would mean sinning against God. And if you're in a situation where your husband is putting you or your children in harm's way, you should seek to protect yourself and your children if you have them by leaving the home to look to some sort of assistance to intervene. If, if you're in a situation like that, we wanna encourage you to contact the authorities and please let your elders know. Being in a situation like that is not okay and you need to find ways to protect yourself or your husband. I know that, that that won't always be the case, and that may not be the case for any of the couples. I pray that's not the case for any of the couples here, but what do, what do you do when you get into a situation where you're a wife and perhaps you are seeing the instruction to be subject, and you're like, I desire to, I desire to be subject. I just don't, I can't get my husband to lead in that situation. But what, what do I do there? I think I'd say a, a number of different things to you to help you think about how you can navigate that situation. I think the first thing that you can do is try to model what it is that you're looking for. Uh, if he's not initiating important discussions, if he's not leading the family spiritually, if he's not doing those things that you say, this is what it looks like, this is what scripture says about leading the, the family, you can start to initiate important discussions. You, you can model reading the Bible to your children and, and try, to, try to show them what it, like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. And then kindly and gently say to him, hey, I would, I would love it if you would be more proactive in doing these things. I, I would love it if you would give thought to our finances. I've been talking to you about that more. I would love, love it if you could help me think about our children's education. I've asked you about that over and over again. Husbands, real quick, if, you have, if there are things that your wife has been bringing up with you over and over and over again, ding, ding, here it is. She's looking for leadership in this area, and, and you can start to initiate by doing those things that she's asking you to do. If your husband still doesn't lead, what do you do? Well, I think what you should do first off is pray. Pray for the Lord to work in his life. 
I, I, I think I want to draw an illustration from parenting. I have found, uh, and I still continue to make this mistake often, uh, that beating, beating my kids over the head with the same instruction, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, it, it, it doesn't work. Uh, wow. It doesn't always produce the type of behavior that I'm looking for. When, when I come alongside of them and I just talk to them about why it's important that they do it, and then, and then I pray for them and leave it in their hands, that there, there tends to be a greater response than if I'm just kind of on them all the time. So if you're in a situation where perhaps your husband isn't leading, I would encourage you to, to pull back from maybe kind of constantly chasing and saying you want them to do this. Pray for the Lord to work in their lives. And then also bring another trusted couple in. Perhaps a couple where the husband and wife are working together really well who can help you think about what it looks like for husbands to lead in your family and for wives to follow. In the end, being subject to your husband though, looks like honoring and respecting him, sharing your opinions with him, engaging in decision-making, giving input as he seeks to lead, and then entrusting yourself to his leadership. It doesn't look like yelling at your husband. It doesn't look like insulting him because of his failure to lead the way that you want. It doesn't look like speaking poorly to him, uh, poorly about him to others. If you're in a counseling situation and you're having to talk through harder things, things, that's one thing. It's different when you're maybe speaking poorly about him just to others kind of in conversation. It doesn't look like holding past mistakes over his head. It doesn't look like quietly and coldly refusing to acknowledge his leadership or living peaceably with him until he decides to lead in a direction that you don't like, right? If you're doing those types of things in marriage, wives, I wanna say that's not okay in God's sight, right? And you should repent. It pleases the Lord when wives honor their husbands and entrust themselves to their husband's leadership, even as fallen and broken as it can be at times. There is power in that way of living. Power to save husbands who don't believe him and power to sanctify those who do. But we also see that there is beauty in that way of living. And that brings us to point two. A Christian wife should be subject to her husband because it displays the imperishable beauty of her hope in God. Peter wants the Christian wives in his audience to know how beautiful it is in God's sight when his daughters submit to their husbands because of their hope in him. But before he gets to that, he wants to encourage them to fight against a common temptation, which is to primarily pursue outward physical beauty. Look at me at verse three. Look what Peter says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Uh, now, I think some Christians have wrongly interpreted this. I do think it's a minority have wrongly interpreted this as instruction to never wear makeup or never wear jewelry or things like that. But that is not what Peter is saying. If we applied that logic, you can never braid your hair you can never wear gold jewelry, then you have to go to the next thing, which is you can never wear clothing. Yikes, that can't be his logic, right? He says braiding your hair, gold jewelry, or clothing that you wear, right? But he's not saying you can never do those things. Some translations helpfully include the word merely. Do not let your adorning be merely external. There is nothing wrong with desiring to be physically beautiful for your husband. I would say the entire book of Song of Songs is about a husband's attraction to the physical and spiritual, physical and spiritual beauty of his 
wife. It's just that physical beauty shouldn't be where you primarily locate your true beauty or find your true beauty. It shouldn't be your primary goal. It shouldn't be where you place your hope because it won't sustain your hope, right? Physical beauty is fleeting. what, What does scripture say about the entirety of our lives from birth to death? Let's say we live 80 years. It it says it's like a vapor, the whole thing, like a vapor. It's like a warm breath on a cold day. It's like a blade of grass. We are here one moment and gone the next. That's the description of the whole thing. How much more fleeting is the window of time in which a person might pursue physical beauty, even, even shorter? Right? How much more fleeting is the window of physical, external beauty? That's why Peter wants them to know. Don't merely pursue external beauty. It's, it's fleeting. It, it, it'll be gone in a moment. Instead, instead, pursue the beauty that will last forever. Look at verse four. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He's telling them to adorn their soul, to cultivate the inner person, to cultivate the qualities of gentleness and quietness of soul. I think it's a beautiful thing for women, wives, and all Christians, men, husbands, and boys included, to pursue. The gentleness in view here is the same type of gentleness that marked Jesus who described himself as gentle and lowly. Jesus was strong, right? We're not mistaken about that. He flipped tables when he had to. He was bold and spoke the truth even at great cost to himself, and yet he did not break a bruised reed. He did not put out a smoldering wick. He was gentle and lowly in heart. Wives, Ladies, Peter is calling you to be like Jesus, strong and mighty, yet gentle and lowly. But not just gentleness, also a quiet spirit. Stop again, make sure we're all on the same page here. He is not telling wives to be quiet, as in don't talk, don't share your opinion. He's not telling women to be weak, mousy, or any, any things like that. He's saying cultivate a quiet soul. What does a quiet soul look like? It looks like the quiet and glassy waters of a lake on a bright, beautiful, and windless day, totally undisturbed. He's telling wives to cultivate a a tranquil heart, right? A tranquil heart soul, that, that soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, that, that soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, that knows that Jesus will never forsake them, is, is able to be like still waters in the midst of the turbulence of life. This is the picture that David is painting when he says, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That gentleness of soul, that quietness of spirit comes only through spending time with the Lord in his word, through spending time with the Lord in prayer, 
by gathering regularly for worship, by, by being in fellowship with other Christians who can help you cultivate that quietness of soul when it is disturbed. And did you notice how Peter describes that inner beauty, that gentleness and quietness of soul? Look at verse four again. The wife or woman or Christian man, for that matter, who cultivate, cultivates Christ-like gentleness and quietness of heart is cultivating an imperishable beauty. Never fades lasts forever. Peter has used this word twice already in his letter. First to describe the imperishable inheritance of life in God's glorious presence in the new heavens and new earth that awaits God's people. That life will be imperishable. It will not spoil. It will last forever. And second, he uses it to describe God's eternal and imperishable word. Ladies, wives, there is such a thing as beauty that lasts forever. You can be beautiful forever. You can cultivate a beauty that is imperishable. There is a beauty that will never fade. In fact, it will grow more and more glorious the more it is cultivated until it reaches the beauty of full blossom in God's presence forever. And it is a beauty of cultivating a deeper trust in God, a deeper hope in God, which produces a deeper gentleness and deeper tranquility of soul in the midst of difficult circumstances, like a difficult marriage. For the wives and women of CBC, I know it's common for many women to have a beauty routine. Could be simple, could be more complex, could be in the morning, could be at night, could be both. My question for you is how much time is prayer, time in God's word, Time meditating on God's promises. How, how much are those things part of your beauty routine? Do you have a spiritual beauty routine? How does pursuing physical beauty, which isn't wrong in and of itself, how, how does it balance out in your life compared with pursuing spiritual beauty, right? Beauty isn't merely outward and physical, but inward and spiritual, right? I think we all know that you can meet an outwardly beautiful woman or an outwardly handsome man, and then after spending time with them, you sadly find, oh, that beauty is, it's only skin deep, right? What's inside of them isn't, isn't as beautiful as what's on the, the outside, right? Peter doesn't want you to fall into that trap. He wants you to also cultivate the beauty that lasts forever. And men, especially husbands and fathers of daughters, we have a role to play in this, a very important role to play in this. If we focus our attention on our wife's physical beauty, or if our daughters hear us talk more about mom's physical beauty, or they hear us telling them constantly how pretty they are, but they rarely hear us talk about the importance of inner spiritual beauty and rarely hear us commending mom's inner spiritual beauty, what kind of message do you think they're getting? They're getting the message that physical beauty matters more to men than inner beauty. And that's not the message that we want to send, right? It's okay to tell your wife she's beautiful. I think I have the most beautiful wife in the world. Physically, yes, but spiritually. Like it's her spiritual self inside that I am just so attracted to. Like I, I couldn't imagine life without her. 
And that's what I wanna commend to my sons and to my daughters and, and to you all to be commending in your wives the inner spiritual beauty, calling out in your daughters the inner spiritual beauty that, find, that God finds precious, right? We need to be telling them all the more how beautiful they are on the inside because the world is gonna want them to think of only about what's on the outside. We want them to know how much more it matters to us that they love Jesus and are cultivating the beauty that lasts forever. And that type of beauty, notice what Peter says at the end of verse four, is precious in God's sight. There's only two other things in this letter that have been called precious. Jesus' blood, which has ransomed us from sin, is precious. And Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone of our faith. Jesus is precious in God's sight. And wives who honor and entrust themselves to their husband's leadership, who cultivate gentleness and quietness of soul by putting their hope in God, are also precious in God's sight. But to the wives at CBC, to the women at CBC, I want you to know that God sees you. You are precious in his sight. God sees you. You are a daughter of the God who sees do you remember the story of Hagar being cast out into the wilderness with, with her son when she's cast out, left to die? God comes to her aid and, he, and she says to him, you are a God who sees. God sees the sacrifices you've made. God sees the ways that you may have had to let go of particular dreams in order to follow your husband and care for your children. God sees you putting your hope in him. And as you honor and entrust yourself to your husband's leadership, he sees those things. He sees that and you are precious in his sight. Precious in God's sight. And Peter wants you to know that this has always been how holy women have made themselves beautiful. Look at verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own Husbands, notice that inner beauty doesn't come from external obedience to commands like be subject to your husband. Inner beauty comes through hoping in the Lord, trusting in the Lord. It's that hope, that trust in God's goodness and his trustworthiness that and then enables you to be subject to your husband. And notice the example he gives. Verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Right, Peter's citing Genesis 18 here where God promises that Abraham and Sarah will have a son, which at first glance is a crazy passage to cite here to show Sarah's submission to Abraham because when Sarah hears God make this promise in Genesis 18, what does she do? She laughs. She scoffs at God and at his promises, and she says to herself, oh, after I'm worn out, because right, mind you, she's 90 years old at this age, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure of having a child? Peter is citing a passage where Sarah is doubting God's promises, but he cites it because even as she is scoffing, her disposition to honor her husband comes out so naturally that in a throwaway comment, she calls Abraham her Lord. Oh, after I am worn out 
and my Lord is old. Shall I have, she's not, she's not even thinking about Abraham. She's thinking about the fact that she can't believe God's promises, but she has submitted to him and entrusted herself to him so fully and completely that even as she's scoffing at God's promises, she still calls her husband Lord. And, and Peter said, that's a sign of her respect, her, her submission to him, her, her honoring him. It's not just a throwaway comment. Think of Sarah's example though, right? At the age of 65, 65, she leaves her family and her homeland to follow Abraham on what one pastor called a 25-year camping trip. She submitted to him. I, I, you can't, um, I, we, th these are real human beings, y'all. She had a family, she had extended family, and Abraham's like, we're going. Where are we going? Don't know. I, God's gonna tell us, where are we gonna stay? I've got a tent. Where, where are we gonna go? We're just gonna journey throughout the land. God, God will fulfill. Uh, can you imagine being in that situation? And yet she went with him. She entrusted himself to him. She followed him throughout the promised land as they awaited God's promises. She followed Abraham into Egypt where he led poorly. She then followed Abraham into Gerar where he led poorly again. But she continued to honor him. She continued to entrust herself to his leadership. And as you do that, as you honor and entrust yourself to your husband, even when it's scary, Peter says, as you do that, you are her spiritual children. You're not just Abraham's offspring. You're, you're Sarah's offspring as well. The mother of the covenant of promise. As you submit to your husband and follow him and entrust yourself to his leadership, you are her spiritual offspring. And here I just wanna take a moment to commend the ladies and wives at CBC. This is you all. For the last six years, I have watched y'all do this. I've watched the ladies who aren't married pursue the Lord, cultivate a deeper hope and deeper trust in God. I've seen you grow in your love for the Lord and it has challenged me and helped me love God more. I've watched the wives at CBC seek to honor and entrust themselves to their husband's leadership even when it's been hard with faith in God, with hope in his promises, with a gentle and quiet spirit. I've watched you all respond to scary circumstances and difficult circumstances by doing good and not fearing things that are frightening. You've been like the woman in Proverbs who is clothed with strength and dignity and who laughs at the days to come. And your faith has enriched our entire congregation. And I wanna encourage you to keep doing what you're doing more and more. And I know, because I've pastored y'all for six years now, I know some of you are gonna be focused more on the ways that you've failed to do this. And are probably thinking of all the other women who are precious in God's sight, but not you, because you haven't honored your husband the way that you ought, or haven't hoped in God as much as you should. If that's you, let me just point out to you, neither did Sarah do it perfectly. Because while she honored her husband and followed him into the promised land, into Egypt, into Gerar. We also know about the episode with Hagar, right? Where she didn't trust in the Lord and she took matters into her own hands and yet she is precious in God's sight. And you are, you are her children if you follow in her steps. Wives, you, you aren't saved by your perfect submission. You're saved by the perfect submission of Jesus Christ who submitted himself perfectly to the Father's will 
entrusting himself to the Father's will, even when it was scary, even when those in authority abused their authority, and it was through his perfect submission that he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could be ransomed, forgiven, cleansed, and empowered to live a new and holy life, a new life in which we follow in his steps. And for the married women here, that means being subject to your husbands as Christ was subject to the Father and to the unjust authorities who crucified him. It is his submission that shows you the way that you are to live. Look again at the very first word in chapter three. Likewise, wives, be subject to, likewise, as in be subject in the same way that I was just talking about in chapter two. What what was I describing at the end of chapter two? The submission of Jesus Christ who suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. This is is an example for all of us to follow, and next week we're going to talk specifically about husbands, but for wives. Christ died not only to save you, but to leave you an example of how you might follow in his steps in submitting to your husbands. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't break out and and shout threats, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. This is not a command that that we're just giving to you carte blanche outside of the gospel. This is Jesus has saved you. Jesus has ransomed you. Jesus has shown you what it's looked like to submit to yourself to people you can't trust and who actually have your worst in mind. Now you who have husbands, submit to them in the same way that Christ set an example for you. Continue cultivating inner Christ-like beauty by continuing to hope in God. When your husband fails, don't throw it in his face. When he doesn't lead well, don't insult him and point it out to him. Point it out to him in a loving way. Lovingly challenge him to be more like Jesus and keep hoping in the Lord. Keep cultivating that beauty that lasts forever. I, I couldn't, couldn't help but notice as we were singing Almost Home, first, first uh, stanza says, how many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. Pilgrim saints like perfected Sarah, perfected Abraham. We're almost home. There's gonna be a day coming where you're standing next to your perfected spouse, but you're no longer married to one another because you have the perfect spouse. God himself will be our husband and he will be perfect to submit to and be subject to. The the difficulties of this life will not last forever. The difficulties of marriage, the joys, they, they, they will all be eclipsed by the eternal and imperishable joy that awaits where you and I together will display that imperishable beauty of our hope in God that is, that is hidden now and not perfectly seen. Friends, wives, keep going. We are almost home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
thank you again for the women in this congregation, for the wives especially who submitted their lives to their husbands, who've entrusted themselves to their husbands' leadership. We pray that you would richly bless them in the days to come, that you would deepen their hope in God, that you would deepen their love for your promises and their trust in you. Uh, We pray that you would do that for all of us as a congregation, that we would all be marked by this hope in you, that we would all cultivate this gentleness and quietness of soul, that we would all follow in Jesus' footsteps, whether man or woman, husband or wife, wherever we are in whatever stage of life we're in, help us to follow in his steps. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.